Uh, this week, though, um, we're going to just spend some time looking at something that for me, um, this week, I needed this. Like, so I'm just coming, I'm preaching, I mean, I'm, I'm tired, um, and I needed this this week. And so, so often, I'll just kind of like, as your pastor, get up and be like, so I needed this, so if it's helpful, here it is. Um, and sometimes you'll be like, very helpful. Other times you'll be like, I'm thankful that Dustin needed that, right? Um, but next week, we start a brand new series that's going to take us through the entire fall, uh, walking through key parables, uh, stories that Jesus told, looking at the kingdom and the kingdom ethics that follow as we follow Jesus. So that's what we're going to be starting next week. So this week, Again, just a standalone message out of something that I think we're all feeling. I think that as COVID um, has has magnified certain things, these things were definitely alive and well before COVID, but COVID kind of magnified some of the things that we're seeing. And uh, I looked this week at some of the stats around um, entertainment and social media use, and phone use, and just screen time, generally, uh, and streaming, different streaming platforms, uh, with a spike in those things, which we've seen in COVID, radical spikes in just entertainment, in social media, in screen time. We've also seen, though, a radical spike in mental and emotional health challenges. Uh, Depression, isolation, uh, divorce, domestic problems, domestic abuse, domestic violence, and substance abuse, and also suicide. And those things are always correlated, and we saw that before COVID, but COVID has kind of come in and magnified these things. And today, there are literally thousands of things screaming at you and I to demand our attention. There's thousands of apps and platforms designed intentionally to just get our attention, to loop us into distraction and addiction. It's 24 hours, there's something coming at you and I trying to get noise and attention from us. Uh, economists are calling it an attention economy because if a company can get your attention, they're gonna get our time and our energy and also our, our money. Now, what's the impact of this on us as human beings? Well, it's robbing us of the ability to, to be, to simply be present in any moment, whether it's with our families, whether it's when we're alone, whether it's at work, whatever it is, whether it's it's, it's a hobby and it's leisure time, we're never fully present anymore because there's so many things fighting for our attention. We're never fully engaged, living in the moment, fully attentive, giving ourselves to an experience because there's so many things that we're doing. There's so so much multitasking to be done. So the impact that it has on you and I is that we're rarely in silence anymore and we're rarely ever truly alone. Even if we're alone on our couch watching Netflix, we're not alone. We're not alone with our thoughts. There's still something causing internal and external noise. So we don't get time in silence. We don't get time alone. And I think that my pastoral concern and what I've seen over COVID especially, and as I talk to other friends who are pastoring in different places in the globe, we're seeing the same thing. That there are lots of things, brothers and sisters, that are taking our time that are not worth our time. And the impact on us is deeper than just superficial. It's actually an impact on our very person. It's an impact on our soul. Because what we give our time and energy and attention to is the person that we become. It is who we become. And if you look at this week, where did your time and energy go? Because that will tell you who you are, who you are becoming. It shapes your values. It shapes your worldview. It shapes what you are giving yourself over to. It shapes the very thing that you worship. It's a big deal. 
And this week I had to fight to just, just cut out distractions, just to be fully present. And when I was trying to be fully present, I saw myself having these like ticks, ticks of attention going elsewhere where I can't be fully present with my wife, fully present with my kids, fully present with someone that I'm spending time with. And so I needed this this week. I needed to look at Jesus again and to look at the way that Jesus lived and the way that he calls followers of Jesus to live in an attention economy, in a world that is just grasping for our attention. And if they can get our attention, ultimately they will get our life. Um, A non-Christian columnist in the UK named Andrew Sullivan wrote an article that has become well-known now. It's called, I used to be, when I used to be a human being. (laughs) And he says this, listen, there are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shape shift under this pressure, the threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget that we have any, that we have a soul at all. That's not a Christian person reflecting on this epidemic, which is really a pandemic worse than COVID, which is this attention thing that is going to continue to draw us in like a black hole into using our time and energy for things that ultimately are going to shape us, not for the better, but for the worse. And what's really important is that followers of Jesus or even people that are just, you know, skeptical and kind of like checking Jesus out. What's really important is that we don't only learn from Jesus's message, but that we also pay attention and practice Jesus's methods. How Jesus lived is just as important as what Jesus said. And I know we make a lot of a a, a big deal and it's good about the red letters in our Bible, the things that Jesus said. But sometimes it's at the expense of the black letters and looking at how Jesus lived. Because how he practiced daily rhythms and how he invited his disciples to live is an outflowing and an outworking of the message that he taught. And so Jesus doesn't just, he's not just theology in skin saying stuff. Jesus is God in flesh, living life to the fullest. And if there's one thing we've gotten wrong in the West is that we have made Christianity about information at the expense of formation, at the expense of truly looking and saying, how do I practice the way of Jesus? Not just pay attention to what Jesus has said. We've done a lot of work in this. This sounds familiar because I've preached similar things over the last year about spiritual disciplines, the idea of practicing things. And in 1 Timothy 4, 7, there's this awesome text about discipline yourself for godliness. Discipline, that word is like train yourself. It's the Greek word behind gymnasium. It's like go to the gym so that you can live a life of godliness. So there's actual spiritual practices to be learned and a way to live that make us into people who are more like Jesus. And often we feel far from Jesus. We're not experiencing God. We're not experiencing communion with him. We're not experiencing fellowship with him. We're not seeing the real life practical implications of the gospel. And sometimes that's our fault, but I do think it's a failure of the church at large 
to show us disciplines and habits to be learned and practiced in order to live how Jesus lived. And of course, we don't do it by our own strength, of course. We don't do it by our own energy. We don't just make do, do better, be better. That's, that's not the gospel at all. But there is something about our response in faith to the way that Jesus lived that ultimately does transform you and I. So, just like no one exercises by accident. Like anyone, any, anyone ever fall like face first into a six pack? Like anyone? If you have, like let me know how you did that. Because I've got a one pack. This is dad bod thing working, Right? No one drifts into being in tip-top shape. No one. You work at it. You, you discipline yourself to be in shape. And just like that's true, our relationship with God is not going to be vibrant. We're not going to be in shape unless we practice the ways that Jesus invites us to practice. So I'm going to look at one practice that Jesus does over and over and over again. And we're just going to unpack it for the rest of our time. And then we're going to practice it, like today. Like before we start singing again, like we're just going to have a few minutes to actually practice it, okay? I know it's weird. It's like, no, no, but church isn't about doing things. It's about coming and listening to things. It's like, no, no, we're, we're actually going to practice. And this practice that Jesus does over and over and over again, it's a Greek word, eremos. And usually it comes out in English as desert, wilderness, or quiet place. Before it was a terrific film, The Quiet Place, Jesus was, was living this out, this rhythm of quiet. Actually seeking out a place to disconnect from everything else taking his attention to be, to be quiet, to, to be still, to be in silence. And he does it so much that we miss it. <laughs> like he does it so often. I went through the gospels this week and I again was blown away by how often Jesus all right, so, so Jesus, who could have like done more miracles, could have preached more sermons, could have done anything, he often in the middle of his busiest season will be like, disciples, come with me. Let's go to a quiet place. And the disciples are like, what? what? No, but like there's hungry people and there's people still sick. Like Jesus, can you do that again? Like do that sermon thing you just did because that was awesome. And he's like, nope, we're gonna go away to a quiet place. We're gonna go be still. We're gonna go be quiet. And this practice is Jesus detaching intentionally from all of the noise and all of the demands of life to focus on what's most important. So there's a few examples that we'll see. I'll, I'll look at a couple. But in Matthew 4, straight at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he comes right out of baptism, right? This amazing moment of baptism. We see Father, Son, and Spirit, this Trinitarian community about to do the work of redemption through the gospel. And he's baptized and he comes out and he's ready to start his public ministry. And he's like, I got my plan. I'm gonna start ministry. Here we go. And then what does it say? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the quiet. And you're like, wait, no, but productive people hustle. We don't go into the quiet before we start about to execute an awesome plan. But Jesus does. Rather than run straight into tasks, Jesus actually goes away into the quiet. Uh, in Mark 1, we see this. Before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place. That's desert, that's Eremos, to pray. Later, Peter and the others went out to find him. When they found him, I love when the disciples are looking for Jesus and they can't find him. I just, I just always, I don't know, I always find that amazing. They, they, they wake up at the campfire and they're like, rapture? Like, uh, Jesus? Where, where are you, right? When they found him, they said, hey, everyone's looking for you. Like, Jesus, where have you been? Like, you're Jesus. Where, where are you? But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns 
and I will preach to them too. This is why I came. Mark 6, a little bit later. The apostles returned to Jesus from a ministry tour. So the, he sends out the apostles on like a short-term mission trip. They come back all jazzed up on Jesus' juice. They're just so pumped. They're like, can't believe what we just did. This is amazing about all they had done and taught. And then Jesus said, not let's go do it again. Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. Jesus does this over and over and over. And the Greek verbs that are used for him withdrawing is a continuous withdrawal away from things to be in the quiet. So it's not like he just did it a couple of times and the disciples were like, oh, okay, like, oh, that's interesting that Jesus does this. He's God, that's, that's weird. It's that he continuously, regularly disciplines himself for withdrawing from everything to focus on the thing that matters most. Not to get his introvert on, not to have me time, not to get away from people because they're exhausting and they're the problem, even though sometimes they are. But Jesus does it to intentionally detach from everything that's not God so that he can intentionally be with God. And he was God. So so how much more do we need this in an attention economy that our soul is being shaped? by our scrolling and our streaming and our clicking and our influencing and our platforms that we're told that we need to have or else we're barely a human being. We need it so desperately and we are going to flounder and drown in the cultural waters if we don't fight for it. And we are. Some of you are drowning right now. We're drowning. And if you think that that we can make it upstream in this culture without being completely detached from so that we can be attached to God to then go back into the water, you're a fool. And I'm a fool. So no wonder some of us are drowning. No wonder some of us are just being eaten up by this monster, this secular liberal monster that preaches sermons at us through our scrolling and our platforms and tells us and shapes our worldview through what we stream and and, and our kids, like our neurochemistry of our children. Today we need silence and solitude more than anything else. In a culture of constant noise, distraction, pings and alerts and notifications that are desensitizing us, dulling us, shaping our neurochemistry. We're growing increasingly uncomfortable with silence. Why? Because we're so used to noise. It's so awkward to be in silence. They're saying 15 seconds is our threshold for silence right now. So it's much easier just to be in the house alone, going to cook and be like, Alexa, play dinner jazz. We do it. I like dinner jazz. I'm just like, but, but we're constantly craving noise. Could it be that God speaks louder and is more present in silence than we think? I think the answer is a loud resounding yes. And that's why Jesus does it constantly 
think why we're so addicted to noise too is it has to do with silence feeling like unproductivity, right? Like, so in a hustle culture where we're always getting it, whatever that means, living your truth and going and getting it. When hustle is our God and our idol that we worship, silence feels like nothing. You with me on that? Silence feels like absence, but it's not. Silence is the vacuum that we need for the presence of God. But we don't make time for it because we're out there hustling and getting it to then get what? To then do what? To then leave it on an ash heap of eternal insignificance? Dallas Willard, the great writer on spiritual disciplines called silence and solitude, the most radical Christian disciplines. I love that. Not, not prayer, not fasting, not vigils or whatever those are, right? Like silence and solitude, the most radical discipline of Christianity. I think he's right because there's something so amazing about practicing quieting outer and inner noise. And solitude is just the same. When Jesus goes off, he's going off away from people because he's removing himself from other people and distractions. So silence and solitude just hang, hang together so that we can give God our full attention. Some of us give like theology books a lot of attention. Some of us give online debates a lot of attention. Some of us give streaming platforms a lot of our attention. And then we wonder why we feel far from God. Because we are. Like, right? Like, it's like, I don't know. I don't feel far from God. You probably are. Because we don't actually practice the way of Jesus. We just turn Jesus into theology with skin on, make it about what he said, and don't practice what he did. And church, I'm telling you, the vitality, the life, the fullness that we get when we live like Jesus lived by the power of the Spirit, when we don't want to, that's why it's called a discipline, We give more of our time and energy and money when we don't want to, because that's why it's called a discipline. We give of ourselves to people who are potentially frustrating and might just leave us in the the dust. Why? Because we discipline ourselves to do it. The gospel shapes all of this. Uh, Richard Foster, again, another amazing writer, just a giant writer in spiritual disciplines. He wrote in his book, The Celebration of Discipline. Here's what he said. If we hope to move beyond the superficialities of our culture, we must be willing to go down into the recreating silences, into the inner world of contemplation. Now, don't get all bent out of shape about the word contemplation because then you immediately start thinking about new age, turning inwards to yourself. That's not it. Is it? Meditation and contemplation are biblical practices long before they were hijacked. So a green tea macchiato and your inner peace and tapping into the universe is a hijacking of true contemplation and meditation. Notice that he said it's to get past the superficialities of our culture. We are a superficial culture if we are anything. (laughs) Like, Like there's one word that describes us, it's superficial. And if there's one sin that we commit more than anything, it's coveting. Our entire culture is built on covetousness. We have online platforms that constantly scream at us about the things we don't have and that we need, apparently. Jesus goes, do you have clothes and do you have bread? That's all you need. Because God provides even that. Amazing. We need to get past the superficialities of our culture if we're going to impact our culture with the gospel. But if the church is just as superficial, just as selfish, 
just as insecure and just as insular and consumeristic as people who don't know Jesus, what are we doing? We need to grow up. We need to live this out. You don't need more sermons. You don't need more courses. You don't need a workbook on contemplation. You need to practice the things that Jesus practiced. And then our lives will be transformed by that. And then we get to move out as one, as a people, as brothers and sisters, different, not superficial, but quiet, still, transformed, changed. This is what we need more than, I'm convinced this is what we need more than anything. Not even a vaccine for COVID. Like we need this more than anything. So let me ask you, think about your week for a second. Just reflect, contemplate even. (laughs) Think about your week. How much quiet did you get? Daily, how much quiet did you get? Intentional time alone with your thoughts, with your heart, with your feelings, with your fears, with reflection. Not time to scroll and stream and binge. That's not the same. Because here's the thing, here's the lie. We bought into the fact that if I'm sitting in a chair, this is me sitting in a chair, scrolling like this in quiet, that that's quiet. There's internal noise constantly being drawn from that. Sitting streaming and watching an episode of This Is Us is not quiet time. Beautifully written show, by the way. Okay, it's not quiet time though. That's not quiet. That's not the Eremos. That's not silence and solitude. Silence and solitude is literally your phone. I know, God forbid, this is crazy. Ready? Radical. Turn it off. Like not even do not disturb. Like do not disturb. You still like walk over and kind of like, oh, notification, interesting. I didn't hear it. I better check it. Right, anyone? Like constantly. Psychologists are saying that even when your phone is in the same room as you, it's draining 30% of your attention, even if it's off. (laughs) What? (laughs) Like it literally drains us of what we need to live a full life in the moment. Like it literally, psychologically and emotionally is draining energy from being attentive and present. That's not even from the Bible. That's just like science. Crazy. Could it be that God would be speaking louder to his church if we were more intentional about practicing silence? Practicing quiet, giving our full attention, our eyes, our ears, our feelings, our thoughts, our mind, our energy to God. I think silence is hard for a few reasons. Um, I think silence is hard because we're no longer in control. All day, you and I walk around and we use words and we use actions and we use apps and gestures and posts and our keyboards to control things. You with me on that? We're in control. We're in control of what we do post, don't post. Someone disagrees, we delete their post, right? Like it's just, we are constantly in control of everything. But guess what you're not in control of? Anything. When you're sitting in silence, your sense of control, your miniature sovereignty over all things is stripped from you in, this, in the quiet place. You're left 
being made bare because in silence, silence and quiet and solitude remind you that you're not God. And all day, every day, everything comes at us and tells us that we are just God's. We have control, just manifest what we wanna manifest. Set your mind on something, go get it because we're getters, we're hustlers. Ignore pain and just kind of like put bandages over top of it and the real like deep soul hunger for the transcendent. Let's just replace it with streaming. And the Bible constantly makes a key connection between absence of noise and the presence of God. Amazing. And then the God man, Jesus Christ shows up and practices that. Like practices absence of noise to be present with God. And then he says, follow me. Right? But they were like, well, give me another sermon on the spiritual disciplines. No, no, follow Jesus. Like go, go now, go, go. Practice what Jesus did. Practice it. I tried it for 10 seconds and then I just opened Facebook. Practice it. Psalm 37, seven, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. We don't do that. We don't do that. We pray, we throw something out into the, cosmos, that if it doesn't happen the exact way we wanted it, we shake our fist at the heavens. You with me on that? We don't do that. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. It's in stillness and quiet that we know that he is God. The Hebrew word for be still there is amazing. It's actually be idle, be, be alone, be nothing and know that God is God. Isn't that awesome? Like, like be nothing so you're reminded of who God is because everything comes back to him and comes from him. Be still, be idle. My favorite and my favorite prophet in scripture is Elijah because he's a train wreck, but God still uses him, which is like all of our story, amen? Elijah in 1 Kings 19, very famously, he's just like, God, I don't know where you're at. I wish you would show up. And then the wind comes and God's not in the wind like he was with Job. Then an earthquake comes and God's not in the earthquake like he was at Sinai. And then a fire comes and he's not in the fire like he was with Moses. And then it says in Hebrew, it's beautiful, the sound of thin silence. God speaks. I just love that. And I feel like the greater Elijah, Jesus Christ, the one true prophet, comes and shows us exactly that, that God actually operates and changes people in the thin silence of him, of being with him. And secondly, I would say that silence is hard because it's actually an act of resistance. You wanna talk about a revolution? You wanna talk about social change? Be quiet. (laughs) Be quiet. Take some time to be quiet but it's a resistance. It's a a movement of resistance against all the noise. It's a movement to resist all of the attention that is being drawn from us constantly so that we can hear and see God. C.S. Lewis, which I mean, what would a sermon be without C.S. Lewis? In his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is an allegory about a demon uncle mentoring his demon nephew, the uncle Screwtape calls the devil's realm a kingdom of noise. And he says that in the end, we'll just make it one huge noise. That was 50 years ago. That was before the internet. 
Because there's something about noise. There's something about distraction that shapes us in such a way that we are unable to be with God, experience God, and be changed by God. In silence, I think you're reminded of who you truly are. <laughs> like, like you're, you're not who you are in public. I don't know if you knew that. Like, like your, your impressive portfolio, it's not who you are. Who you are, true character, is who you are when no one else is around. Your thought world, your feelings, your fears that define you when you're alone is who you actually are. No wonder we spend all the time in the world trying to silence that. Because we're left with transcendent, existential questions in the quiet place. Good and bad, right? Fears and insecurities and joys and celebrations and appreciations and and memories that maybe are hurtful and memories that are amazing. Like some of you people are nostalgic, right? Like my wife is so nostalgic about certain things and she'll just sit in quiet or she'll be standing in a room and I'll like walk in, I'll walk downstairs and she'll just be like, I'll be like, what are you, what are you doing? Nothing, just remembering. I'm like, what? Like she's taught me how to like, like remember stuff, right? Over the last 10 years of marriage, it's like, what are we doing right now? She's just thinking. I'm like, hmm, okay, yeah, I like that, yeah. I don't. Because for me, it can be painful. Like, like for me, it can, be, it can be hard. Because things rush in when the vacuum of silence and solitude is there. Things that I don't have control over anymore. Things that I might not want to think about. So what do we do? Well, we use external noise to drown out internal noise. Because it's hard. But Jesus commands it. <laughs> Like, like Jesus tells us to practice it. Jesus tells us to come with him into it. So let me ask you, how do you feel about being quiet? Like right now, when you think about silence, how do you feel about being in the quiet? Maybe some of you are, are afraid of being in silence. Maybe some of you practice this well and you just, you crave it. Like it's just like a, a safe place for you continue to practice it. But most of us, I would venture to say, are afraid of the quiet because it's left you for who you truly are and God for who he truly is. You know what happens in the quiet place, church? Is that we get there and then we realize that the persona that we portray in public of ourselves isn't real. (laughs) And maybe you don't even have the love for God that you just portrayed when you get to the quiet place with him. Maybe you're not as cool and clever as you were on Facebook. You're probably not. Maybe the quiet draws attention to something that needs to change. (laughs) I love those times where you're just like, I didn't come to the quiet place to be reminded that I need to change. I came to the quiet because people are annoying. It's like, no, you're annoying. It's like, oh God, mm, so good, right? Like there's just something about this that actually shapes us for the better. Now, Blaise Pascal, great old time thinker said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit in a room by themselves." That's amazing. That, that's incredible. And hundreds of years ago, <laughs> observed before, again, before all the other things that are coming at us to distract us and grab our attention. Can you sit in a room quietly by yourself? <laughs> Do it this week and watch how you feel. 
Some of you will be like, wow, this is the most refreshing thing ever. I didn't realize how badly I needed this. Others of you will be like, this is torture. Kill me now, <laughs> right? Because we're so conditioned by the constant economy of attention and noise. And here's the other thing. All day, every day, your values, your beliefs, your thoughts, your feelings are being shaped by the stories that our culture tells. So, so your beliefs about money are shaped by our culture if you are not actually actively pursuing what God says about money. Our views of purity and sexuality and romance are shaped by every movie, every rom-com, right? If we are not bringing ourselves in to become attentive to what God actually says and intends for romance and sexuality and relationships. And you could go down the list of anything that is important to you and I is constantly being preached at by our culture and that's noise. And if we don't get away from that stuff and actually pursue what God says about these things in the quiet place where he already is waiting for us, we, we will drown and we are drowning. So to apply it over and over and over again, what do we actually do in the quiet? So what do you do? You just sit there, you hum, like I don't, Dustin, what do you even do? Well, Jesus shows us exactly what he does. You might've caught it already, but not just disengaging. Jesus doesn't just disengage, he does that, but then he engages with prayer. Almost every time it's mentioned that Jesus goes off into the Eremos, off into the quiet place, he then prays. And so there's a disengagement, but then there's an engagement happening. So that's, that's, that's the, the misnomer is that silence and solitude is a nothingness. It's like a, a lack of something, but actually it's the presence of something else. It's a cutting off of communication out there and a re-engaging of, com- of communication with God in, in here. And we, and we need it desperately. There's a major theme that I saw this week in Luke where Luke actually highlights prayers as he goes through the gospel. It's amazing. Like they're, they're everywhere, but he highlights them at key points in the gospel. And he actually traces Jesus's prayers from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the cross. It's amazing. So if you just go and read Jesus's prayers and all the times that he prays, most of the time he's in the quiet. And catch this, the only spiritual discipline that Jesus commands is prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, is recorded in all four Gospels. It's one of the only things that actually shows up in all four of the Gospels is when the disciples say, teach me, us, how to pray. Teach us to pray. Okay, so, so here's a few examples of Jesus doing this, okay? Uh, Luke 5, 16, after calling his disciples and doing some miracles, but then he withdrew to a quiet place to pray. Luke 9, he was praying alone and only the disciples were with him. So he's modeling this. So he's not even there with, like he's not having a prayer session with the disciples. He's with his father praying and the disciples are there going, what are you doing? Luke 11, this flows out of that. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Notice they didn't ask, teach us how to pray. Like we love how to's, eh? Like, like if we just get, give me a manual. Dustin, I don't, your, your preaching's not very practical because you don't give me seven steps. It's like, well, you don't, you don't need steps. You don't need how-tos. You need to, you need to practice. Like, like Jesus 
does this and he's always doing it. And I think that's the moment in Luke 11 when, and in Matthew 6, when the disciples have seen him do it so often that they finally go like, Peter, go, go ask him, right? And, he, and Peter shows up and goes, can you teach us to pray like that? Not how, but to pray. So there's something about apprenticing under Jesus and with Jesus that is experiential as we practice these things. And I think the only reason Jesus is asked by his disciples on how to pray and how to pray is because they see him do it so often. <laughs> He's doing it all the time. And then they finally are just like, why do, you, why do you do it like that? Why do you do this? So without a doubt, the center point of Jesus's life is prayer. It's disengaging, it's the quiet, and it's prayer. And if we're honest, it's not ours. Prayer is difficult because it feels pointless. Uh, and we're an experiential people, so we don't get like tingles or experiences. Then, I mean, it's a bad show, right? Like it's a bad, bad episode. So if we go and pray, we don't get tingles or an experience. God's not real, so I'm out. We end up just chasing experiences and not actually communing with God. We find prayer unengaging because we're a culture of engagement, more engagement. We find it unstimulating because we are literally addicted to stimulation and dopamine. When we pray, our mind wanders and we can't keep attention. Just me, right? Like anyone? No. Okay. It's like, I'm, I'm like 10 seconds into prayer. I'm already like, beef brisket for dinner? Yeah. Oh, or maybe with some like pita bread, right? Like, I'm just like, what? Like I, and then when I do actually focus on praying, here's what I do. I pray for everything. I just go like right to world peace, right? Like world peace, coronavirus. Right now our kids have gotten into the cycle of praying that the coronavirus goes away for all eternity, end quote. So they both pray it like every time we pray, Lord, please make the coronavirus go away for all eternity. I don't correct them because I like that prayer. But there's something about praying that is very difficult. And I'll tell you right now, church, prayer is hard when we have Netflix. <laughs> prayer is hard when we have Facebook. Prayer is hard when we have YouTube. Prayer is hard when we have Twitter. But it is literally dulling us to the point that we are losing our soul. And here's what's cool. It's what I love about the relevance of scripture. Always, God's word is always relevant for every church and every age. This is not a new problem. I mean, Netflix, Facebook, those are new, but it's not a new problem. In Luke 22, Jesus takes his disciples up to the Mount of Olives to pray, okay? So he goes there and then he says to them, hey, pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And then what do they do? They fall asleep, <laughs> okay? So like, like Jesus just said, come pray with me and pray that you don't fall into temptation. He comes back, they're sleeping. And then a few minutes after that, Peter wakes up and then tries to behead a Roman centurion. And then a few days after that, he denies Jesus because of the peer pressure from a teenage girl. Here's the point. When we fail to pray in private, we will fall in public. You will drift from God and love for him and an affection for the gospel in private before you drift from him in public. And we're so obsessed with our public image that who we truly are is absolutely disintegrating in the kingdom of noise. 
So church, pastorally, I'm not angry. This is out of love. This is passion for you. This is angst for me. The health of our church, God's presence in your life is directly tied to prayer. Because prayer is where you're confronted with your need for God. Prayer is where we're confronted with the fact that we're not self-made, that we're not self-sufficient, that we're not sovereign, that we don't have control. Prayer reminds us that we're dependent and desperate and needy and we can't pretend anymore. When we go away to the quiet and pray, I'm left with like who I really am. There's three versions of yourself, they say, right? The person that you think you are, the person that other people think you are, and then the person that God knows you are. And prayer is hard because it gets at that third person, (laughs) your real person, who you truly are. You can't put filters on anymore. You can't airbrush anymore. You can't be clever. You're left alone with who you truly are. And really, the only person who knows who you truly are, and that's God. And last, before we pray, you reveal what you believe about God more than anything in how you pray and in how you don't. So again, like some of you are functional atheists because you, you don't pray. It's like, yeah, but I'm a Christian. It's like, yeah, but you don't pray. Like, like some of us also have heresies, functional heresies that we bring into prayer. It's like, oh, Father, cast your amazing energy upon, you're like, what? Like, what, what are you doing? Talking to a God who's not real, talking to a God that doesn't save, talking to a God who doesn't have power because it's a dead God. You reveal what you believe about God in prayer more than anything else. So listen, if you, if you see God as a personal advisor whose job is to like prop you up and grant you your shopping lists of things that you want and he only exists to upgrade you and bless you or if God's a CEO who's just like, you're just an underling and he's always too busy and always too important to spend any time with you, that will change how you pray. If he's just an angry judge You're always going to be praying afraid. And it's not a healthy fear of God. It's an unhealthy fear of God. Because you're just waiting for him to be like, oh, interesting, you're praying. Where have you been? You haven't prayed in a week. Waiting for him to drop the hammer. If you believe God's an impersonal force or energy, which is the sermon of our culture, then you will just try to manipulate God with your words and your faith so that you can just get the candy out of the candy machine. How does Jesus relate to God in prayer? Well, Father, Dad, Dad, like you know me, you love me, you're for me. Father, every time Jesus prays in in the gospels, he addresses God as Father. That's significant. Uh, Jay Kim in a book I'm reading called Analog Church, he says, how we communicate affects how we think and how we think affects who we become. I think we're being shaped by our prayer and our lack thereof because how we communicate shapes who we we are. The good thing about our father, our good dad, is that not only does it make us brothers and sisters, but our father never leaves a prayer unanswered. This is really important. 
Because we do this all the time. It's like, God didn't answer my prayer. No, God answers every prayer, every single one. Sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is no. And sometimes his answer is wait. <laughs> he answers every prayer. So, so don't believe the lie that time in prayer without results means that prayer is not being answered. Sometimes the good, good father says, I'll get back to you. Wait, wait. The kids love when they ask me a question and I say, I'll think about it. Because it drives them crazy because they want the answer right now. And they also know I'm gonna go and think about all the other things that happened that day and it's either gonna be really good for them or really bad. And we don't like that answer from our father. But listen, church, sometimes God, as a loving father, will say no. And you say, but I really want this. And he says, but, but, but that's the worst thing for you. Trust me. Be with me. Come with me. That's what prayer does. And I think so often we wonder where God is when our lives are full of everything except prayer. So it's just a loving rebuke to us that if your life is full of everything but prayer and you feel far from God, it's not God's problem. It's not your church's problem. It's not your pastor's problem. It's your problem. And you need to practice the way of Jesus. I'll leave you with this. J.C. Ryle is a pastor in the 1800s. So this is why I'm quoting dead guys. Okay, I'm quoting dead guys so that you don't think that this is just like a modern phenomenon that we have to, you know, figure out. This is the condition of the human heart. It just happens to be really hard today with all the things coming at us. J.C. Ryle, listen to what he says. Can we really believe that people are praying against sin when we see them plunging into it? Can we suppose they pray against the world when they are entirely taken up with the world's pursuits? Can we think that they really ask God for grace to serve him when they do not show the slightest interest in serving him at all? No. It is as plain as daylight that the great majority of people either ask nothing of God or do not mean what they say when they do ask, which is the same thing. Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. I look at people's lives and I believe that few people pray. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be quiet and we're gonna pray. So wherever you're at, like wherever you are at with God, whatever your week look like, whatever distractions might flood your mind right now, as we have just a couple minutes, literally a few minutes in quiet to pray before we worship and respond, fight to just get to the quiet place. Fight to kill all of those distractions and give your full attention to the God who knows who you truly are and wants you to know him as father. Let's do that now.